You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. Well, good morning, good morning. How are we? Good to see y'all. Um, glad some people showed up, didn't know. It's a little tricky when your local team's in the Super Bowl. Uh, but this is our Super Bowl, as you might have saw my note uh, this weekend. So I'm just going to lay it on thick this morning. Um, no, I won't. Uh, but uh, really glad to, to be here with you. And uh, hopefully you were served well last week by Jim Hayes from The Fount, if you were here. And I got to preach at his church downtown, and it was a great time. And uh, so I heard it went really well. Um, they can speak on how it went down there with me. Um, uh, they're not inviting me back. So if that says anything, uh, no. Uh, but it was a really great time just to, to be together. And, um, and as we uh, continue to, to work through the scriptures together, we're, we've been doing a series uh, through the whole Bible. We're going to be in 2 Kings this morning, 2 Kings chapter uh, 5. We've been kind of taking a 30,000 foot view of the scriptures, so we're not hitting every story and every verse, but kind of looking at the grand story and the grand narrative of how we actually see Jesus on every page, that we really believe that and deep in our bones, that Old Testament, New Testament, uh, it's really revealing Christ. It's revealing this God who comes to redeem and restore all things uh, and show us grace and mercy, grace we don't deserve, and to heal and restore even creation uh, itself. And so Jesus shows up in these very unexpected ways, and I think our story this morning morning is one of those just grace-filled stories that is so beautiful and amazing, uh, where if we can't see Jesus there, I don't know if we can see him anywhere. Um, but I want to read that to you, Second Kings chapter 5. It's the story of Naaman and uh, the slave girl, if you want to call it that. Um, and we're going to look at Second Kings 5, just the first uh, 14 verses or so. Second Kings chapter 5, verse uh, 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out 
to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over this place and cure the leper. Are not Abani and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And this is the word of God for us this morning. Um, I don't share my story all that much, and you may get bits and pieces here, but I, I came to faith late in high school, early college. And when I became to faith, became a follower of Jesus, one of the things that I had a hard time understanding and walking in and embracing was this idea of grace. <laughs> and there's a reason why I had a hard time with grace was because everything in my life was the antithesis of grace. So it was, I was worthy, I was accepted if I was getting good grades, right? I was worthy, I was accepted if I was doing well on the basketball court uh, or the football field or um, at the golf course. Uh, and as you know, uh, most of you know, I was a world-class athlete. So every time I mention that, there's just laughs and giggles. So, uh, but there, my worth and my value was based so much on what I'm doing, what I'm achieving, how I'm perceived, if my relationships were good, if my relationships were healthy, then I was loved, then I was accepted. So that was the air in which I breathed all around me. And then I encountered this message of grace, that there's mercy, that there's forgiveness, that it's not about what you do. It's not what you earn. Your worth and your value is not based on achievement or if you scored X amount of points in the basketball game or got A's on your chemistry test. And, and as I began to kind of swim in the waters of grace and in, in the church, I realized that even though our message was all about grace and it was all about mercy and forgiveness, often in practice, it lacked grace. It's a little bit of what Brennan Manning, uh, he was a, a Christian writer long ago. He's passed away, but he said, put bluntly, the American church today accepts grace in theory, but denies it in practice. We say we believe that the fundamental structure of reality is grace, not works, but our lives refute our faith. And so I, I don't know what your experience of grace has been, but it, sometimes it's this theoretical grace. In theory, we say, even in our own country, right, we're a country of second chances, right? But when someone screws up or someone falls on their face, they're canceled, right? Or they're pushed away. In theory, we're all about grace and we're all about forgiveness. But in practice, often it's the opposite. And so our, our story this morning of, with Naaman and this little slave girl is really about dipping our toes, or I should say, diving headlong into the waters uh, of grace and, and really looking at it and, and, and asking the questions, well, how does, it, how does it begin? Where does it start? How does it work? How do we get in on it? And so I want to look at that just for a few moments here this, this morning is, is where does the grace begin? Like, how, how does it begin? Like, where does it, it start? And it's a very fascinating story. And I think it kind of unearths for us how the dynamics of grace actually work in our lives and in the church and in the world. So let's, let's first look at the beginnings of grace. And there's an interesting context going on here. This prophet Elisha has been doing all these different miracles up until this point. He Earlier, he raises a kid from uh, the dead. <laughs> he, and then later, he does this miracle with this bad batch of stew. So, you know, and we think about the Super Bowl, and you have just a bad batch of soup or chili, and, and it, it was going sour, and he somehow heals it, makes it, it pure. He's doing these series of miracles 
And then he gets to, I would say, his greatest miracle is the healing of Naaman who has leprosy. This man who has this skin disease. And I think from the context of this, of, of seeing Elisha do his work with Naaman and these other uh, miracles, as we begin to see how this grace thing actually begins to work. Because notice with me in verse 1, who is this guy Naaman? Well, Naaman, it says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. So this was a, a general, this was a, a, a competent, skilled, wealthy leader, and, and he was uh, battling against Syria, and Syria was well, brutal enemies of Israel in the ancient World. And so here's this guy, competent, skilled, strong, has everything going for him. But you notice the little but there, but he was a leper. And so if you've understood leprosy in, in the ancient world or even, even today, there's different versions of it. It's a skin disease. It's hard to actually nail down, but it has to do with our nerve endings that you actually begin to lose feeling in your nerves and you're actually, your, your extremities can actually fall off and you don't feel it because you don't feel pain. And it's a horrible disease. And even in Israel, uh, in Israel, to be a leper would be to be unclean. And so you were treated as kind of this, this social outcast. So here's this, this man who's competent and skilled and wealthy, but he's got this debilitating skin disease. It's the thing that, that keeps him from, from fully experiencing life. Because imagine a man who's got all these things going for him, but you know, if you're a leper, like people are just going to kind of stay away from you. So there's this deep need that he has. But again, he's powerful, he's arrogant, he's competent. But he's beginning to realize that this thing needs to be healed. He has this, this need. And I think when you really begin to think about grace, and when I think about my story and probably your story and most people's story, whether you grew up in the church or not, there comes a time in your life where you realize that we're not as self-sufficient as we think we are. <laughs> that, that we realize that we aren't as strong as we think we are, or we're not as good as we think we are. And Naaman is beginning to move in that way to say, I have all these things going from all this wealth, all this competency, all this skill, all this victory in battle, but there is this thing that keeps me from experiencing life to the full. This illusion of self-sufficiency is beginning to die in him as you kind of move through the story. I think of different examples in scripture. Uh, it's interesting, actually, when you study the prophets, is almost all of them are very reluctant. <laughs> like, they're not just like, oh, God has called me to be your prophet and let me go speak the, the, the oracles of God. They're just like, no, I don't want to do that. I, I'm, you know, Jeremiah was this guy who's like in a, you know, naked in a pit and just like you know, crying and, and just like, I don't want to do this, right? And Isaiah was just like that. But he has this powerful encounter in Isaiah chapter 6. And he encounters the glory of the Lord and he sees God in all his beauty and all his perfections and all his holiness. And here's this reluctant prophet of God. And he says this in Isaiah chapter six, verse four, he says, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that it had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then he said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to my people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. It was this windless opportunity that, that he had. That he had to encounter God first to realize I'm lost, I'm unclean, I'm sinful. Even the people around me aren't that sufficient as we think we are. That we are sinners and need grace and need mercy. You begin to realize that the beginnings of grace begin with a need. You begin to realize that we don't have it all together and what we need is God's grace and God's mercy to show us who we really are at our core. And I think it's a, it is an illusion of self-sufficiency because we all lose everything eventually. I know that's really uplifting on Super Bowl Sunday, but we do. Eventually, we will lose our health. Eventually, we'll lose our minds. I and mean, if we live long enough, we're probably all going to have cancer in some way, shape, or form. I mean, it's just the reality of it. We're all going to slow down, Right? We're, we're, we're all going to lose the relationships that we, we love and cherish so much. And some of us have lost those relationships. And we've lost jobs and we've lost finances and we've lost uh, the ability to even do daily tasks. Because there's an illusion of self-sufficiency that if we just work a little harder, go to the gym a little longer, get the right supplements in us, that's not coming for me. Somehow I can evade that. For a lot of us, including myself, as we all think we're a little wiser than we really are, it's the illusion of self-sufficiency. I have the answers. I know what to do. I know where I'm going, right? And, and so there, there comes this moment in all of our lives where we have to begin to realize we have this great need. And Naaman is facing this moment of existential dread that his wealth and his power are being stripped away because he's got this debilitating skin disease. So it begins with me, but it also, if you notice, he also, you have to also, I think, secondly, acknowledge that the world can't and won't save you. Notice what Naaman does because he is this powerful, competent leader. He does the typical thing. He says, I can just pay for this. I can go to the top, right? I can go to the power players and get this thing fixed in me. Like, I don't need anyone else. I, I'm, I'm Naaman. I'm, I'm wealthy, right? So notice what he, he does in verse 5. He says, uh, 5B or 5A. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I've sent to you Naaman, my servant, and you may cure him of his leprosy. So, so he writes this letter. I'm going to go right to the top. I've got this problem. I've got this disease. I have money. I have wealth. Now, we read that again. Um, I don't know if you have shekels in your pocket right now. Uh, gold, 10 changes of clothing, right, in the car in case the zombies come, right? You got to be prepared. But this is a lot of money. Like, this is hard. I mean, I even did a deep dive into my, you know, nerdery, which is my study, and um, trying to figure out how much money this would have been, and commentators differ on this. But we're probably talking, this guy's worth millions and millions of dollars, perhaps billions in our parlay today, <clears throat> I'm going to buy my way to the top. I'm going to write a letter to the power brokers, and they're going to figure this out. I'm going to go right to the king. And, and there's another thing that's going on, I think, under the, the surface here, is that writing to the king is his understanding that if I write to the king, I know they have all kinds of prophets and healers that are on the payroll, and that somehow they're going to send me someone that's going to heal me of this disease. But what you begin to realize is that even with the greatest connections and even with 
the greatest amount of money is you can never earn or buy your way into healing or to salvation or to grace. It's not about who you know. It's not about going to the top. So Naaman still doesn't understand. He has this great need. He's realizing that his self-sufficiency is, is waning, but he goes to the top and, and it has to acknowledge that, that even these people can't save me. Now, he's not completely there yet. Because notice what even the king says in verse 7. <laughs> and when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? that This man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. He even knows, like the king knows, like this, this, he's, I'm not God. I can't heal this guy of his leprosy. I can't save this guy. Who does he think he is? And he also, the king also thinks because of this man's reputation that he's a, a military leader is that this is just going to cause another battle. Like, we don't need another battle in our hands. He's writing letters and what if I don't heal it? Like, like this is a, a whole big mess. Because Naaman thinks that the way I'm going to be healed and doesn't understand grace at this point is if I got to go to the top, I got to go to the world, I got to go to the power brokers and the strong, and the people that have connections. And then I can be made right. Then I can get in on what I need. I can get my, my, my needs met. And what's interesting, I think, in the ancient uh, world also, is that, that every nation had a God connected to that nation. And so nations were often deified. And so you would have a, a nation, and then you would have a God that was the, the gods, God or gods, plural, of that nation. And so Naaman thinks, well, if I go to Israel, I mean, they have a God, they have gods, right? And so that means they have healers and they have, right? And so, so maybe if I, can get, if I can bring the right offerings, if I can bring enough money, then somehow I can get in on that and be healed of the things that I need to be healed of. That if I get on the right side of the gods, God, this God will bless me. This God will show me favor. This God will end the pain that I have. But you know, like, that's not how the gospel works, right? It's not about balancing the scales. If somehow I can do enough religious things, or I can knock on enough doors, or I can give enough money, that somehow God will show me favor, somehow God will bless me, somehow God will, will heal me. And I think most religions have some form of, of that, if I just do enough, say enough, pray enough, that, that somehow, the, the, if, I, if I reach some level of spiritual consciousness, then, then maybe, just maybe, I'll, I'll, I'll receive God's favor, God's blessing. And I think even for Christians, we have a hard time fathoming a transcendent God that's beyond culture, that's outside of it, that's separate from it. The Naaman doesn't realize that at this point. The God of Israel is separate from the culture. He's not wrapped up in the country. He's not wrapped up in it. He's separate from it. He's able to speak to us and speak to him outside of it. This isn't, hey, if you do enough for me, then maybe I'll come through and save you and heal you. And I think for us, too, the, the temptation and the challenge is when something goes wrong in my life, instead of us going to God, we go to everyone else, right? We can just throw money at it. Just, I mean, the, the counselor can help me, the, the scientist can help me, and there's nothing wrong with those things by any means, right? Those are all good things. Those are all means of, of God's grace. But, but what, what he's getting at here is what ultimately Naaman needs. Ultimately, what we need is more than just healing of our external leprosy. 
but a leprosy that runs deep in every human heart called sin. This heart that is, that is warped, that is broken, that moves away from God and loving God and moves away from loving our neighbors. We need something deeper inside of us because here's the thing with healing is that eventually we're just going to die in the end anyway. Like we want to be healed. Yes and amen. I mean, we've prayed for people to be healed and, and you know, God has come through and often, sometimes he doesn't come through. And yes, we, we want that physical healing. We want those, 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 those things that, are, that, that make life hard and miserable to go away. But there's a deeper healing that every human on the planet that will ever be will need more. And it's a healing that will last forever. And it's, comes with knowing God. It comes with a relationship with God. It's forgiveness. It's love. It's mercy for now and for, for forever. I, I've been fascinated by, um, and you may have heard me say this before, but, but um, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, years ago at, at our church, we had a group that would meet and helping people through their, their, their addictions with, with alcohol and other things. And one of the things that's so amazing about that, that program is that they begin with the, the honest reality that you are not going to fix this. You have to get to the end of yourself and lean into a higher power if you ever want to get over your addiction to alcohol. And, and I think that's why they've had so much success. And maybe some of you have been in meetings or, or been around people that have struggled with that. I know I've had family members that have as well. But it's getting to the end of ourselves. You're not sufficient enough. It's, you have to lean in something outside of yourself that's going to help you walk in this and manage this. And really all it is is managing it until one day we're all made new and those warped sin and desires go away where God redeems it all. But this is what Naaman was beginning to realize is that he had this great need and that the world wasn't going to come and save him and make it all better. He needed something more, something deeper. He needed God's grace to move into his life. And so as we continue to fall, now we're looking at how entering Graceland, which I'm calling it. <laughs> the world of grace, notice a couple changes that happen to Naaman as he gets closer and closer to understanding this grace that God is, is showing him. Is that one, he becomes more open to hearing truth from God, essentially through Elisha, the prophet. So, so the prophets were the ones that spoke truth on behalf of God, spoke the word of God, like, like wanted to, to, to speak, this is who God is, this is what he's like, this is what he's called us to, right? The prophets even of old, that really their job was just to call people back to the covenants of God, to remind them of what God is up to and who he is and what your identity is in him and how you're to live for him. And so, so he was to encounter Hearing truth from God, he needed to hear someone else. He didn't need to hear from a king. He didn't need to hear someone say, you know what, thanks for all the, the money that you brought in and the gifts that you brought in. We're going to heal you now. But he needed to hear from God himself. And so in verse 8, it says, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over this place and cure the leper. There's an interesting exchange that's happening here. That Elisha intervenes and says, actually, what this guy needs to hear is a, a word from God. And he doesn't even show up. He doesn't even, even invite him face to face. He actually wants to do it from afar. And some commentators have said there's actually something very profound that Elisha's doing here. 
the fact that he's not in his presence is to point him to say, I want you to know that God is doing this. Not a prophet, not a healer. Go down to the river and you'll be healed. Like he doesn't even show up on the scene. Doesn't say a word, just go follow my instructions. I I want you to encounter the truth of God and not point to some preacher or some pastor or some prophet. How often do we fall into that trap, right? We're more enamored with the preacher of the day that's on YouTube than we actually, what God has to say to us, right? It's not the same thing. Right, so, so he's, he's kind of pulling himself away saying, this is how actually grace works. It's a direct encounter with God, not the messenger, but the message that comes from the messenger. I want you to encounter that, but you notice um, Naaman's not happy about this. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back around to see that because I, I think he's, he's kind of moving in, into grace, but he's having a little hard time here. Now, we know, if you know the story, and I read it, is that Naaman does get healed. We, we know that. We see that in verse 15, right? He, he actually does kind of relent, and he, or 14, and he, and he comes, and he, he's healed. And then you notice his response in verse 15. I didn't read that. He says, then he returned to the man of God, which is... Elisha, and he says, and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your, your servant. So, something has, has shifted in Naaman. He wasn't just using God or the gods as what would, would have been common of, if I just bring the right offerings, if I bring enough money, if I go to the top, then maybe God will throw me a grace bone. He's realizing this God is not like any other God and acknowledges, and this is pretty radical. I mean, this is Old Testament. This is thousands of years ago. We live in a very pluralistic society. This is not cool in our day to acknowledge one and only one true God of all gods. So he, he, says, he says it again. Behold, I know there, there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. There's only one. He's the one. He's the living God, the true God, who's the God of all gods, the one who does show us mercy and grace, the one who who can heal. And so his relationship with God has shifted from this kind of nebulous, nominal, general relationship. If I just pull the, the levers the right way, then maybe God will be happy. Maybe God will love me. Maybe God will show me favor to encountering a God to say, there is no God like this. I don't deserve this grace at all. I don't deserve this healing. I was going about it all wrong. And Elisha being as wise as he was saying, I'm going to make sure that he knows this is not about a prophet or a pastor, but it's about God speaking to him. It's about God healing him, the one true God. And what's fascinating about this story, I think, is it does something in us. It kind of messes us up a little bit because I think if we're honest, grace is still a very hard thing to receive as a gift, right? I mean, how often do we on Christmas go, how much do I owe you? Or someone gives you a gift on your birthday and you're just like, hey, can I write you a check for that, right? It's, it's hard for us to go, oh, this is, wait, this is way too nice. Or do you ever felt like that? Or someone buys you a dinner, it's like, oh, we got the next one, right? And then you just go around the whole circle. It's just like forever. Like, did they pay the last one? Did we pay this one? I don't know. I'm, I'm losing track, right? Instead of receiving the gift, right? There's no strings attached. It's unconditional, Right? And there's a story with Jesus, and, and maybe you, you remember this story, and uh, I, I got to preach a, a story right after this one last week at Jim's church. But in Mark chapter 2, it's actually a very comical story where Jesus heals the paralytic. 
So they bring in this, this man who's, who's paralyzed and Jesus in, comes to this man in, verse, in Mark chapter two, verse five. And he says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's a blasphemy. You, who could forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose immediately, picked up his bed and went before them all. It's a very comical story. Here's this man who's healed. He has a, he, he's paralyzed. Like Jesus can heal him. He's done this over and over again. But what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. Which is easier for me to do? Can I, to heal you? Or to actually have the authority to say the thing that's deeper, the, the, the disease that runs deeper is what you need is the forgiveness of sins, not just your body healed. And God's all for healing bodies too. He's not against those things. Those things aren't bad, not wrong. But he says, but there's something that's a leprosy that's even deeper is that we all need our sins forgiven. We need to realize that we aren't as self-sufficient as we think you are. We, we all fall short of the, the glory of God. So he, he makes this statement, I'm the one that can forgive you of your sins. That's even better than getting your body healed because that's forever. It's not just for a moment like, wouldn't that be a sad day if this man who's paralyzed gets healed and then never knows God? Man, this healer came up to me and healed me and it was awesome. And just goes and lives his life not knowing the love and mercy of God. Right? How many people are walking around our city and in our families and our neighbors and our home that, man, they have everything going for them. Right? Everything on the outside. We've been so seduced by that. Well, they got the nice house, the nice family. They got really straight teeth. Right? You know, they're doing Ironmans and they're, you know, got lots of money. But they're walking around not having one moment of the reality that your whole life is grace and everything that you have has been given as a gift. And there's a God who loved you and has come to redeem you and restore you and forgive you. Like, what good is it to, to everything that's going to end up in a trash heap somewhere and that's what we're living for? To not know the love and mercy of God, it's a sad trade off. Right? And so it's grace does this weird thing to us because, because what we think we need ultimately, right, is like, I just need the ledger of my bank account just to go up a little more, right? I, I need, you know, I've been, uh, I'll just be honest here, I've been, I've been trying to lose a little holiday weight um, since 1998, but uh, it, was a, it was a rough holiday, but I've been, I've been trying to, to lose a few pounds. And you know how often I step on that scale and my value, my worth is based on what the number shows back at me? Like, I'm a dude. Like, that shouldn't be a thing, but it is a thing. Like, my day goes, can go badly by the number that shows up on that scale. Like, Lord, I've been eating carrots and drinking water for, like, 30 days straight. Can you, can you help that thing go down just a little? Like, what do we have to do here, right? And, and you know what I'm talking about. You look at your bank statement. You look at the scale. You look at the job you have. You look at your family and you base your worth and your identity on what is shown back at you, whatever number that is. Or you see somebody's house or you see somebody's car, you see somebody's whatever <laughs> and go, well, that's, I guess I'm just a loser, right? And yet what God is moving in into Graceland is to show us 
that our, our lives, our worth, our value is not based on what number shows up on the scale or how well you're doing in school or how well you're doing in vocation or, or what have you. And Naaman's beginning to see that this whole thing is, is grace because he, he does come back and he is, he is angry because he, he realizes, he, he goes, hey, I could have jumped in the gross water of whatever river and been healed. Like that's your answer to it, right? He, he says this thing about, you know, Abana and Parpar, the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel. He's like, anyone can do that. Like the most immoral person, the most moral person, the most wealthy person, the most poor person. But that's how grace works. That's the point. Like he's beginning to see, oh, wait, 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 wait hold on. Okay. Oh, I can just go in the Jordan and be healed. Yeah, this is how it works. It's not earning. It's not because you have money. It's not because you have competence. It's like anyone can jump into those waters. Those waters are free. Those, those waters of, of grace are, are free. It has nothing to do with, if you're a competent general, have a lot of money in the bank. It has everything to do with who God is and what he's like and his character and his mercy towards you. So jump in the waters, man. Jump in, it's free. Might be a little cold, but might be a little confusing, right? Might have to plug your nose, right? Might be confusing, not sure which way to paddle or, or where to swim, but, but this water is free and it's the best thing that you can ever imagine. It will change you. And so much misery in the world is because of the orbit in which we live, as we think the whole thing revolves around us, Right? So instead of getting into God's orbit and realizing this whole thing is grace and this whole, the fact we're even alive, the fact that we have, have anything going for us is all God's grace and all God's mercy is why we experience so much misery because we can always make it about ourselves and what we're achieving and what we're doing. We can never seem to rest in God's love and God's mercy. It's always about well, what's the scale going to say this morning? Then I'm going to determine how my day goes based on that. Right? Or how many as a pastor, how many people show up on a Sunday or, or if there's money in the bank or whatever, we all do it in different ways and shapes and forms. And so he's beginning to see that the whole thing is grace and that we owe every second of our lives to God, but we all fall short of God's glory. We all fall short of his commands. And I think that's why we have a hard time with, with grace is because we, we really keep thinking there's just got to be more I can do. Right? There's, got, there's got to be something I can do, something I can, can add to, something I can say, something, right? Because I've made a mess of things or, I, or I'm not where I want to be. So, so how do I do that? And I think why it's so radical is because it's actually, it's scary. It's scary to think it actually can work this way, right? Right? And some of us have lived under pastors and ministries and families where it's just like, I just never know if I've done enough. I just never feel like I can just rest in his love. I just always feel like there's just, I, I screwed up again and I said the wrong thing, thought the wrong thing, right? And just live under this constant guilt and shame. And my grades just aren't good enough. My job's not good enough. I'm just, we don't have a big enough house or whatever. So you just constantly just breathe in that air over and over again. And so that when you hear about grace, you go, no, that's not how this works. It's earning, brother. Everything's about earning. Well, the church can't just be about cheap grace, right? That's what Bonhoeffer talked about. It can't just be like just throwing grace bones everywhere. Yeah, we can. Because that's the message, right? Because here's the thing. The, the standard's too high. It's too massive. That's the problem. Like we can't reach it. 
We've all fallen short of the glory of God. God is too good and too perfect and too holy. So if we're trying to get there, we can't. That's arrogant and foolish, right? It's like standing before God, like me, you know, standing before him and going, you like that? Huh? You like that? I've been hitting those buys pretty hard, God. You like that? Right? I mean, it's just like, are you kidding me? Like I made a hummingbird. Like you're not that impressive. Like, have you seen the Rockies? Yeah. Just put your little wimpy arms away. Right? But that's what we do spiritually. You like that? Huh? Look what I'm doing. I'm killing it. But that's not how grace works. And Naaman is starting to see it and feel it and experience it. But how do we know if we're actually walking in grace land? (laughs) Drinking deeply of these waters. So Naaman's healed. And go, notice with me a couple details, because this is where it gets really fun. And I'm, I, I left out a few things on, on purpose, because I love the scriptures and the things that just surprise me all the time. But notice in verse 14, so he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Hang on to that. It's a Hebrew word. It's a beautiful word. And it's the same Hebrew word if you actually go back to the slave girl earlier in the story. So, so what is the writer trying to do here? Well, notice in verse 2, now the Syrians on their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Okay, that's, that's weird. So Naaman becomes like a little child. He's, he's healed. His skin is pure. And this is a Hebrew word, and you got the slave girl that's this little child. There's something going on here. This girl was taken because of this battle, this raid that happened, into the house of Naaman as a slave, probably between 10 and 13 years old. Some commentators would say that she probably even witnessed her family die at the hands of Naaman and his armies, right? There's no future for her, right? There's, there's no opportunity for her. She's, she's living under the thumb of this wealthy, strong man. And here's Naaman who gets healed, becomes like a child. And here's this little girl that it's actually the child that has saving him. She's the one who said, Elisha can heal you. There's no bitterness. She actually calls him Lord. It's a, it's a word of affection. She actually calls him this word of affection. She has forgiven this man. She is not holding a grudge against this man. She's not saying, I hope that guy burns. I hope that guy never is healed. If he knew what he did to me and my family and the way he's taken me away, there is no way he should have anything good in his life, but she does the, the absolute opposite of that extends him grace and forgiveness. I, I know a guy who could heal him and restore him. I don't know how your heart works or your life works, but that's usually not my default mode. Like if somebody has hurt me and wounded me and, 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 and I grew up with, with a mother who kind of abandoned me and I thought I had forgiven her for a lot of years and realized that I had it, my response is I hope things go poorly for them. It's what they deserve. And there's none of that with this girl. She wants good for him. So how do we know if we're in and walking in Graceland? Well, one, I think it, it's, the scriptures continually tell us it's, it's about becoming like children. 
It's, it's, here's this wealthy, strong man. Like, this is a, a miraculous story. Like, these are the people that aren't supposed to come to faith, right? These are fill in the blank, right? The, the, the staunch intellectual atheist who's just like, Christians are stupid. And, and, you know, wealthy guy who comes to faith. Use your analogy, your example, whatever you want to. This isn't supposed to happen. But the way he's coming to faith and be, be, beginning to realize how the scriptures work so backward is it's actually when you stop becoming self-reliant, you become God-reliant. when you become like a child that you enter into the kingdom of God. You humble yourself. You realize there's more going on and that I've fallen way short of God's glory, that, there, that there's more that I can't see and don't know, that I need to humble myself to realize I'm, I'm in dealing with God here. And that's why Jesus says to enter the kingdom, right? They're having this debate over who's the, the greatest in the kingdom. And, you know, I imagine just Jesus for the 400th time, just like shaking his head, just like, you guys just don't, been with you so long, you just don't get it. But he says, here's what you need to do in, in Matthew 18, verse two. And calling to him a child, he put him on the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Children are really good at receiving gifts. They're really good at just climbing up in your lap and just being with you with, with no strings attached. Right? There's this kind of built-in weird trust that they have, that they're secure, that they're loved. And we can break that trust and we can do all that, of course. But this is the analogy he, Jesus is using. He's like, this is how you get into Graceland. You become like children, just like Naaman was, was healed and became like a child. His face, he was healed in such a way by this girl who, who, who did the ultimate thing, the sacrificial thing. Like she probably shouldn't even be speaking up. Some commentators say the fact that she's even willing to say, hey, this man can get healed is almost like, whoa, 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 you're a slave. Excuse me. Who do you think you are? And yet God again and again is turning everything upside down, saying my kingdom just doesn't work the ways that you think it works. So can you and I forgive like that slave girl? That's a great marker of are we in Graceland? When you've been hurt, when you've been wounded, can you extend forgiveness to others? Jesus said in the, in the Lord's Prayer at the end, I know it's a part of the Lord's Prayer we like to not look at very long, But at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, he says, For if you have forgiven others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I know that's a haunting text. Like it sounds like, okay, it's because I forgive, God forgives. I don't think that's what's going on here. But what he's saying is the marker of embracing God's grace, embracing the gospel, really walking in grace land is the ability to forgive others. Because if you can't forgive others, you don't really understand how much you've been forgiven. Or maybe you're only dipping in your toes into the world of grace. And that's easier said than done, believe me. In practice, it's really hard. I get it. I, I'm not saying like, like, oh, it's just really easy when someone hurts you, you just go, oh, yeah, for grace, grace, forgive, right? It's hard. It's absolutely hard. But I'll tell you, in my ministry years, the thing that destroys and is like a cancer to the soul are those that cannot forgive other people. They've been carrying things around for 10, 20, 30 years, dying a slow death from the inside out. And it affects everything. 
affects your relationships, affects your joy, how you're a husband, a wife, how you work, all of that. You carry that around. It's like a cancer to your soul. But when we see that we've been forgiven, that, that nobody deserves God's grace, right? Like we forgive because we go, that person doesn't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And yet God in his mercy comes to us and forgives us. When we begin to feel that in our bones and feel that in our soul and go, yes, oh my gosh, I can't believe, how can I not forgive other people? Because then you're setting up the standard, right? Here's a standard that you can't reach. I've re- reached it. I get the grace, but you don't. I love the pitter pat of children's feet. But we, can we forgive like that slave girl? Can we say, I want good for them? And that's really a sign of forgiveness. I want blessing for them. It doesn't mean maybe you can't be reconciled. Maybe the, the, you can't be in the same room. Maybe there's other... Other circumstances, I get that, but the fact that you can pray for them and bless them, that's actually where a a counselor really helped me see my own lack of unforgiveness towards my mother. He asked me a pointed question, I'll never forget it. He said, Ryan, can you pray blessing over your mom? No. (laughs) I had thought I'd forgiven her. He said, until you can actually pray good for her, you're still holding her sins against her. It's a hard one. <laughs> it's, it's a hard one. Believe me. Believe me. So we forgive as God has forgiven us, just like this slave girl. <clears throat> and this slave girl has paid a huge price for Naaman, for his redemption, for his healing, that she is the catalyst, the, the, the one behind the scenes showing us how grace works, showing it how, how, it, how it's so massive and so revolutionary and so amazing, and, and it goes against everything that we thought grace is and salvation is and the gospel is, because it always just feels like it's about working and about earning and about paying and, and, and getting, you know, becoming religious and knocking on doors and saying enough prayers, and yet the whole thing runs and sustained by grace. The slave girl is the outsider that was rejected. Just like Jesus, who was the outsider that was rejected. The one who became sin for us. The one who bore our sin so that he could forgive us. That he could heal us. Isaiah says that, that by his wounds we are healed. Right? This deeper healing. Not just leprosy of the skin, but leprosy of the soul. God bears those things. God takes those things. He was forsaken. He was abandoned. He was left for dead. And what does he say from the cross? And we're going to have a series actually on the sayings of Jesus from the cross. He says, but Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's one of the greatest statements of human history spoken over humanity, spoken over you. God, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they are. They don't know how lost they are. They don't know the cancer that is so deep in their soul. And here's Jesus speaking this over them where all his friends have abandoned him. All his disciples have left him. And he says, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. They just don't know what they're doing just reveals again the character of of God. He sees us. He knows how confused and lost we actually are, and yet he speaks pardon over anyone that will receive it as a gift. As a gift. To realize our leprosy runs much deeper. We're not as self-sufficient as we think we are. 